This morning, we're going to open up in James chapter 2. Uh, it's, I always find it quite difficult when you're to preach on something, you can preach on whatever you want to look at. So I decided to go for something quite in-depth and quite challenging this morning, which is going to be fun. Um, so if you open with me to James chapter 2, um, and we're going to read from verses 14 to 26. It should be on the screen as well. Sorry, I shouldn't have made them a bit bigger. So it reads, Faith without works is dead. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his work. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the work apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to each and every one of us. Lord, would you just open up this passage? Would you speak to us? Uh, and would you just drive something home into each and every one of us this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. So this letter written by James, the half-brother of Jesus, is written with a man that speaks with authority. The letter written to the 12 tribes is sent out, sorry, it's sent out to the churches, the 12 churches uh, among the land. And he's looking to address an issue in his letters. He speaks with authority as one of the pillars of the church with Peter and with John. And I found it really interesting that one of the early church historians, however I pronounce his name, Hegesippus, identifies him as James the Just. It testifies to James' godliness, to his desire for obedience to God, and his devotion to prayer. As something I didn't know, that James had knees that looked like those of a camel because he spent so much time down on his knees praying. I don't know about you, but already that is a challenge. This man spent so much time on his knees in prayer to the Lord, they looked like those of a camel. This letter was circulated, it was sent round to those round and about, it was meant to be read far and wide, which means that the issues that he addresses are common issues across all of these churches. And what we're looking at here, this message in the heart of James 2, is, is the real heart of the message of what James wants to say to his people. He's talking about the nature of true faith. 
What is the nature of true faith? And James sets out for us by giving two examples of what true faith is not. And then giving us what true faith is. <clears throat> the first of these kinds we find in verses 14 to 17. We find dead faith. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. I was thinking of this statement, the statement that we find in the foundations of the Reformation, the five solas that we find. One of the points, the fourth one on that screen, is by faith alone. We are saved by faith alone, and absolutely we are. Absolutely we are saved by faith alone. And it may look like a quick reading of this passage somehow looks to contradict that. But what James sets out for us is what that means. He tells us that not all faith saves, but faith that is alive. Faith, true faith in Christ saves. James is seeking to show us the true meaning of saving faith. And he opens up by showing us what faith is not. The phrase salvation by faith was an important phrase in the early church as it should be. It was going round, but clearly there was some kind of misunderstanding going on here that James felt that he needed to address. The example that he gives here shows that there's some kind of imbalance. That the church was full of both the rich and it was full of the poor, but something wasn't quite lining up here. Something wasn't quite coming together. There was an imbalance between the affluent Christians and the way that they were responding and the way that they were treating the poorer Christians. That's why James gives us this really specific example. And in these following verses, James seeks to help us understand, helps the reader understand what true faith looks like. He says, what good is a person's faith if it does not have works? Can that faith, a faith that produces no fruit, can it save a man? This draws me to the example that we find of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. We find the story of the good Samaritan. A man asks him a question. An expert in the law asks him a question. This means that a rabbi is questioning Jesus. It's a good, it's a normal thing to do for rabbis to discuss, to debate in public forums. It's a good thing to do. And this man, seeking to ask Jesus, is a knowledgeable man. He's a powerful man and he's a well-learned man. And he comes to Jesus and he says to him, Who is my neighbour? And Jesus takes time and he tells a man a story, a story that we all know very, very well. He goes with him and he talks of love and he talks of love without a proactiveness, without a God-centered love of our neighbor. 
really what this man has is dead. And here Jesus sets the precedent. Love God, love your neighbor. And that's what James is doing here. James is hammering home this point that we find in Luke 10. You can't just wish someone well if they are in need. Go and do something. That's what Jesus says in this parable to this rabbi. Go and do something. Go and help. You know, I think it can be quite easy to claim faith. It doesn't take much to say that we're a Christian. It can be a tick of a box on a questionnaire, on a census form. It can be answering a little question, writing a few words. And the percentages don't seem that bad a lot of the time when we look at people in our country that say they have a Christian faith. And faith is easily claimed. But what James warns us is, is this genuine faith? Is this true faith that goes beyond ticking a box? Is this a true faith that goes beyond sitting in the pews on a Sunday morning? Jesus tells us in Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Not everyone who utters the words, not everyone who claims faith will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's clear, Jesus tells us, in black and white. People with this kind of dead faith that substitutes deed for word can know the right language of church, know the right language of prayer, can give testimony, they can quote scripture, but the walk does not add up, does not match the talk. Can that faith save him? James asks. Can the dead faith, where the walk does not add up to the talk, save a man? Yes, faith saves a man, but this kind of dead and superficial faith that is not worked out in our lives does not save. Why? Because in fact, it is not true faith. And here we see James go into this example. If a fellow Christian, brothers and sisters, he's talking about within our own church context, not the big scary wide open world out there, but he is talking within the fellowship of believers, is lacking in clothing and food, and you say to him, that's a shame, but go. Be filled with the Spirit. Go, it's okay. Go in peace, be warmed, be filled. James says, what good is that there's clearly a real problem in the church that James is writing to they were failing to address the problem that was round about them they were not taking responsibility and they were not acting as Christ would act instead of food and clothing essential basic needs that were needed within their church there were no deeds but they were met with warm words. If we are presented with such need and we possess the means to help meet that need and yet we do not, what does it say? A faith that has no impact on our outward behaviour is not authentic Christian faith because real faith acts Real love acts and real faith seeks to serve and care 
for others, especially other Christians. Faith on its own that is not worked out is dead. We see an intertwining, an inseparability that comes with faith and works, that comes with having faith and doing something. And I think that this is the genuinely frightening truth that comes with this that should make us all pause for a minute. That it is possible, it is possible to believe that you have everything sorted with God. It is possible to claim and to believe that you possess genuine saving faith and you don't. But there is hope. There is hope. Dead faith, like so many of those that Jesus conversed with, that Jesus that killed Jesus had is an intellectual faith. A faith that knows, a faith of knowledge, but little else. An intellectual faith alone that only stimulates our mind, that only gets us thinking, is not a faith that saves. We move on to the second example of a faith that does not save. We find in verses 18 to 20, But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Anytime I see the word demons, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know if you're in the same boat as that, but I think it was the same for the readers, that James is wanting to shake the comfortableness of the readers that are receiving this letter. So he uses demons as his illustration. I think in the main, in the Western world, we're fairly ignorant in our understanding of demons and their activity, especially considering their prominence in Scripture. And that makes this uncomfortable. In verse 19, he says, you believe that God is one. An incredibly important statement that is the cornerstone of biblical truth and understanding. There is but one God. Old Testament believers would take this. The Israelites would take this, would recite it. It was paramount. It was absolutely foundational to what they believed. And James says, absolutely, there is but one God. And that's great. Because it's true and it's good to speak truth. But James says, you might be right. And that's good. But you know what? On this subject, the demons are right as well. A couple of weeks ago, we raised this discussion in our boys' Bible study. We asked the question, what do you have to do to be a Christian? And our response is to believe. Absolutely. To believe what? To believe the historic events that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus was resurrected. That's absolutely right. And we recognize within that that acknowledging those facts alone is not enough. Why? Because demons acknowledge that fact. They acknowledge, Satan acknowledges the fact that Christ was a man, that Christ came to earth. The activity of Jesus 
And we acknowledge that there has to be something more that we believe and we let that message transform us. We don't believe in an intellectual way, but we let it go to our soul. We meditate on it, we take time with it, and we let that gospel message transform our lives. Demons believe in the existence of God. Whenever they met Jesus on earth, they testify to this. In Mark 2, we're told, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. They acknowledge hell in Luke chapter 8. They recognize Jesus as judge. And they recognize the power of the word as well. So what James is saying to us to those that are reading the letter, is you believe in Jesus, you believe in the historical accounts, you believe in the power of the word, good, but so does Satan and his forces. But what adds to the dead faith is the phrase, even the demons believe and shudder. The man with dead faith is touched only in his mind, only in the intellect. But the demons are also touched in their emotions. It affects them. They believe and they tremble. A person can be enlightened to the word, to knowledge about God, be stirred in the heart, and it's not enough. We can't congratulate ourselves on good theology because we need to remember who we share it with. Hell is full of people with good theology. And there are no atheists in the demonic realm. They acknowledge this. So affirming certain right things is not enough. To be affected by these things is not enough. To tremble is not enough. Because of course we don't tremble. We rejoice. We rejoice at the thought of our great God and Father rather than trembling and shuddering. But how quickly can we come to declare right words, to sing the right songs, to pray the right prayers and speak well, yet not stop to examine ourselves? Of course I'm a Christian. I've always been a Christian. But we all need to take time to examine our hearts. To love telling people that you are a Christian is not enough. Real faith isn't sentimental, it's not ritual, it's not this little thing that just sits inside you happily. So James gives us these two examples of faith that does not save. They're both connected by the fact that they do not produce fruit. We have dead faith that engages the mind and produces no fruit. And we have this demonic faith that engages intellect, that engages emotions, but again, it produces no fruit. And neither of these kinds of faith save a person. But now we turn. We turn to the example of genuine faith, 
the nature of genuine faith. And it's helpful because James gives us a couple of examples. And we read verses 21 to 26. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person that is justified by works and not faith alone. And in the same way was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Dynamic faith. Three Ds fits together, it's nice. Is a faith that is real. It is a faith that has power. And it is a faith that results in transformation. James begins to describe the nature of this true and saving faith. To begin with, dynamic faith is based in the word of God. We receive our rebirth through the word. And we receive the word that became flesh and this saves us. We not only receive the word like dead faith, it not only does it affect us, but it transforms us and it leaves us wanting to do something. James gives us two examples of Abraham and Rahab as illustrations of this dynamic and saving faith. Both of them heard and received the message of God and they acted upon it. The first example we have is the example of Abraham. In Genesis 15, we read the story. Abraham was burdened because he had no children. All he wanted was a child. It was his desire. It's what he wanted. It's, it's something that really affected him, that he really, really wanted. And God came to him in a vision and he promised him a son. And God said to him, look at all the stars you see. You will have more offspring than all of those. And Abraham believed God at 99 years old. God made his covenant with Abraham that he would be the father to many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And many times God tells him of the promised offspring. And in chapter 17, he says, Sarah, your wife will bear a child. And we read that Abraham falls on his face in laughter and says, how can a man that's a hundred with a wife that is 90 have a child? But God blesses them and gives them their son, Isaac. What an incredible blessing. What an incredible gift. How incredible are babies? That incredible gift. Abraham will have been delighted, absolutely delighted at this son that he had. And God calls him to offer that son as a blood sacrifice to God. The son that he had waited so many decades for. The son that he so desperately wanted above all else. 
God told him to sacrifice him. And Abraham got up and he prepared. He prepared the fire. He had the knife in his hand and he was ready to sacrifice his son. And as he readied himself, God stopped him. Abraham had proved his monumental faith in God. And this is the point that James is trying to make here. Abraham wasn't saved because he obeyed that command from God. But he was justified and his obedience proved that he was already saved. The actions reflected what was already inside him. Verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his work. Again, this intertwinement that real faith is acted out. That real faith is shown. And it shows us this perfect balance, this relationship by believing and doing something. Abraham wasn't saved by faith plus works but he was saved by the faith that works. The faith that goes and does something that is obedient to God. Abraham's faith justified him before God and what he did showed the fruit of that justification. The second example we're given is the example of Rahab. The background to this in Joshua 2 and chapter 6 as well. Israel about to invade their promised land and take the city of Jericho. Joshua sent spies into the city to go and check it out. And there they met Rahab, a harlot, who against the king of Jericho's order, when the men departed, when the men had been, the men had gone, they promised to save her and her family when the city was taken. And that is exactly what they did. It's an incredible story of this woman who, by society's standards, was so low. You you don't get much lower than who she would have been. This immoral woman was transformed by the word of God. She knew that her city was condemned. Rahab responded. She took in intellectually. Emotionally, it grabbed her. And she went and she did. She did what she was called to do. She protected the Jewish spies. She risked her own life. The life of the members of her family. There's two kind of translations of the word harlot. One translates... In Joshua, as innkeeper, this idea that she ran a guest house, so for the spies to go there is fairly straightforward. It makes sense. But in Greek, we read that it's definitely, it means an immoral person, a prostitute that it comes across as here. And what's most incredible about the story of Rahab, as we know, is her link in the genealogy of Christ. That this woman so far removed, so far from from God received, took it in, believed, and did. And we find her in the line of Christ's 
What grace. What grace that such an immoral person, this prostitute, is part of the family of Christ. What grace and what goodness that shows us. You know, Abraham and Rahab could have had dead faith. Just this intellectual experience or even this demonic faith where they understood it and they wrestled a bit inside. No, it's okay. We leave it. I could understand if Abraham went, you've just given me this child, I'm keeping it. No. You're not taking my son. But Abraham knows that his faith in God is paramount. That it is the most important thing. Rahab could have said, I'm not putting my life on the line. I refuse to take that risk for this bunch of spies. But instead, they exercised this idea of dynamic faith. Their minds knew the truth and they acted upon that truth. They proved their faith. They proved it because they went and did. And as Christians, this this is what we need. We need to seek to practice the truth that we receive. Not just holding the good stuff, not just holding right doctrine, not just holding right teaching, but taking that and letting it radiate out of us. If we take seriously the commands of Christ, then we must go and we must do. Does your faith mirror that of Abraham and that of Rahab? Do you have a faith that has transformed your life, continues to transform your life and makes you want to do for God? In the last verse, in verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James sums it up for us. He sums up this intertwining of the two principles. To do something without God is dead. To believe and not act, to believe and not do is dead. One does not come without the other. There is this unbreakable bond that we are consistently shown throughout Scripture. This passage requires self-examination from each and every one of us. No matter who we are, no matter where we are, no matter how sorted we think we have things, we all need to reflect on what we do. We need to see, we need to reflect on actually, does what I do, does that reflect what I think? Does that reflect what I believe? You know, for a long time, for forever, there has been theological debates. There's some big ones been going on in the last few months about this relationship between faith and work and how do they sit? Is it truly faith alone that saves? The answer is yes. But what James tells us is it is an alive faith in Christ that saves. What are the marks of true faith? Helping others. Loving our neighbour, especially, as James tells us, especially brothers and sisters in Christ, less fortunate than ourselves. For months we've been going through the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
and self-control. Are we growing? I think I've asked this every family service that I've said this, but are we growing? Can you reflect on a year ago and say, do you know what? I am on this journey. I can see how I am growing in Christ. Are you progressing? Are you moving forward in your walk with Christ? One of a called to be lazy. One of a called to be happy with where we are. One of a told to sit in this pool of dead faith. But we are called to act. We are called to live a life that ultimately glorifies the King of Kings. If we believe the resurrected Christ, this is the most exciting news there has ever been. The most exciting news there will ever be. How can we not want to act? How can we not want to do? Is your faith being worked out in your life? And do you bear the fruit that Christ is calling you to? James' message is pretty simple. You have incredible news. The most incredible news. The most incredible hope. And it should be evident in your life. Go and make it evident. And the most exciting thing about our God is it's never too late. It's never too late to start. It's never too late to dedicate, to rededicate ourselves to Christ and go today. Today this is me. No longer, no longer will I sit on it. No longer will I wrestle with it. But today, what I do will reflect what I believe. Is our faith being reflected in what we do? Let's pray. Father, what a challenge. What a challenge to each and every one of us. Lord, this week, would you help us? Would you challenge us in the areas where our actions, where how we treat others, where what we do does not line up with what we believe? Lord, would you show us the areas in our lives where we can be more like Abraham, where we can be more like Rahab, that can be so focused on you, whatever you ask of them, they go and they are prepared to do. Lord, we thank you for your word and for all that it says to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.